Good morning. Thank you for coming this morning. Is this a first time at Brooklyn Zen Center for anyone? Oh, welcome. Um, my name is Shokuchi. Uh, and uh, I was invited to give this, uh, to take this seat and to speak uh, about the Dharma um, some months ago. Um, I haven't done this before at Brooklyn Zen Center. I have, in other ways, expressed myself, but this particular formal um, taking the seat, sitting down on the seat of Dharma, um, I haven't yet done here before. So uh, I am very uh, honored to be asked to do this, to offer some words. And I'm also uh, realized this week that uh, I can't think of, a, in some ways, a worse time <laughs> to have to speak. And, um, and also a more important and better time for me. So uh, I'm going to speak about matters that are difficult for me to speak about. And uh, I ask your forgiveness ahead of time, should I speak in any way that's unskillful or creates pain for anybody. It's not my intention. Um, I'm learning. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a teacher in training, and I'm learning. Thank you, Corey. Um, learning how to speak the Dharma in the real world. The real world meaning a world in which um, difficult things are happening, and life is not abstract. So I uh, just want you to know what my intention is, and I invite uh, your feedback. I think I'll take a drink of water right now. I was telling Corey that I, I never want water during when I give a talk, and I, today I was like, I think I need water. So this time last week, I was sitting in this room with some of you in a session led by my teacher of more than 20 years, Tenshin Reb Anderson, who visited this Sangha and does so once a year, seemingly. And his teaching was on great compassion, if one can narrow this down to a few words, on listening as great compassion as great compassion as the foundation of wisdom, wisdom not being available without compassion. And um, the practice of precepts as compassion, which gives rise to wisdom. We didn't get into the details of our daily news cycle, for the most part maybe ever. But when I re-entered that world, his teachings were very 
alive for me. This talk, um, in spite of all the stuff in front of me, is coming just from my heart. And I have an unfortunate uh, tendency to cry when I speak from my heart. So uh, please excuse that, too. Um, so I re-entered a world that you are all quite familiar with and that we are all dealing with. And um, I have spent most of this week thinking about, meditating on, considering what my response is. What is, in fact, the appropriate response? So as I go along in my talk, I will probably reference little bits of Tenshin Roshi's teachings. I understand his talks were recorded. And if they are available, I recommend them to you as a kind of foundational, um, as a foundation. But there is a teaching in Buddha Dharma. Uh, it's a koan, uh, something like, what is um, the lifetime, the teaching of the uh, of Buddha over many lifetimes, and that is the usual way it's translated is an appropriate response. And um, Tenshin Roshi mentioned that the actual Chinese characters, there's two characters, and one is meet and one is teach. So I began to think about what does this mean for me in this situation, which I will characterize in a moment, my own way. And um, I thought, teach doesn't quite get to it. I think, and I haven't checked this out with my teacher, but I think that character, for me, must indicate full expression. And when I thought that, I remembered that my teacher used to often say at the end of a meeting, have you fully expressed yourself? It's a very common saying of his. And so what is this full expression, this meeting of what's happening that comes up via listening? the compassionate practice of listening. What is it to meet that and um, with full expression? And uh, so what I'm thinking right now, and I appreciate that all of you have and are thinking deeply about these same matters in your own way. So hopefully there will be time for us to have some uh, hearing of that. Um, but what I'm thinking is that first one does have to start with deeply listening. To listen so deeply and so widely that the cries of the world enter one's complete body, skin, muscles, bones, marrow, that one becomes, in a sense, transformed 
and then um, fully expresses that in the situation. So this creates a, a difference between um, maybe a habitual response um, that comes from the surface, which I also honor and engaged in quite a bit this week. I, my main vehicle is social media, so I take in news from there. And I happen to have wonderful, mostly Zen friends in social media. And so um, the cries and the information have been bouncing all over whatever it is they bounce through to get to me. Um, so I have responded at, in ways I, I allowed myself to, attempting some regard of the precepts. And I watched myself respond, and I saw what was habit. And I saw my understanding deepening as I heard more and more read more and more, listened more and more. And I came to this talk with the wish to, to respond in front of you as witnesses in that way as much as I can, as much as I am capable of in this moment. I brought these various things here because they were all tangents of thoughts I've had as how do I talk about this. And I don't really know which way it's going to go. <laughs> I don't know which way it's going to go, but they're right here if I need to refer to them. And um, I want to say that for me, what I have been expressing very loudly in digital terms no to is what I understand and perceive to be the stealing of children. They were not given by their parents. They were stolen. And I also want to acknowledge Number one, this is not new for our government, that we have been doing this for a very long time. So I want to take some positive view in this situation that there is this kind of nationwide response, even though, to my amazement, there are those who don't see it this way. And I've heard them. And I don't agree with them. But they are part of the world of great compassion. And I, I feel that way toward them. I feel there's ignorance from my perspective. So this is not new. But I think we're upset about it because it's thousands at once and systematic and done in our name. Children are separated from their families every day. And one 
Antoine Rose II was separated from his family forever this week. And his community is rightfully calling attention to that. But again, this is not new. The Native American peoples of this country know what this is. And certainly, those enslaved by our society know what this is. So I'm encouraged because finally, as a country, we seem to have a certain mass that says, no, we will not tolerate this. This is wrong. This is immoral. This is taking what is not given. These children were not surrendered freely. So that's my current perspective on this. Now, now what? So I have a perspective. And I continue to listen. And I continue to read. And I continue to express myself. I'm expressing myself now. So now what? So this question brings me back to a study years ago that I did of a very important Zen text. Um, you may have heard of it, or maybe not. Has anybody heard of the Diamond Sutra? Yeah, Diamond Sutra. So it's actually a very early text in the wisdom uh, tradition of our school. Um, we sometimes think of ourselves in the Mahayana as coming later than some of the early Buddhist texts that were written in Pali. This is very, very early, maybe one of the first. And its Sanskrit name, I think, is important because uh, the Diamond Sutra isn't quite a great translation. And the translations of the Diamond Sutra are not so great either, having studied it in the original Sanskrit with a Sanskrit scholar. So Vajra Chedika Prajna Paramita. Cutting through like a diamond, or my Sanskrit teacher said, an acupuncture needle, which I find uh, more to my liking. Dogen Zenji, our Japanese founder, wrote a poem called The Acupuncture Needle of Zazen. So acupuncture needles are sharp. But they are so sharp that they heal. They create movement of energy. They unblock obstacles. So this is a text to cut through, but not in a kind of violent way, but in a healing way. Prajna is wisdom, and paramita is going beyond. And sutra, I think people know sutta or sutra as a teachings of the Buddha. So uh, in this sutra, which starts very sweetly, and this is never translated very well, Shakyamuni Buddha goes, puts on his go-to-town-and-beg outfit and goes and begs for his food, as was customary. Yeah, he didn't do oriyoki. He had a big bowl, and he went from house to house, and he received what was given and ate it, whatever it was. 
And then uh, he returned, and he was followed by his monks, and he returned to uh, his uh, current residence, which I would love to talk about, but I won't take the time, because I visited it in India. Um, and uh, he sat down after eating, and um, his disciples and his followers sat around him. And he moved his robe over one shoulder. So Buddhist priests wear these robes over one shoulder as an indication that he was open for questions. And one of his wisest followers, Sabuti, arose, circumambulated three times, uh, knelt down, and he stated a question which usually is translated something like, how does a bodhisattva achieve uh, anyuktara sambodhi, um, or complete enlightenment? That's not what the Sanskrit says. It's more like, how does one who wishes to be a bodhisattva stand, walk, comport themselves physically. That's actually the Sanskrit. In other words, we are embodied beings. What do we do in this lifetime, in this body, if we want to be a bodhisattva? So I've had that question a lot. And ever since I read that, I, I was just so happy that that was right at the beginning of this rather abstruse text chanted for years, but never really quite got. Um, and it, it goes on like that. It's, it's very grounded in, in the body. So what do I do, is my question. What do I say? How do I say it? What will be helpful? What will be harmful? So for me, one of the things is that I want to stick to the point and not get lost. And we have a tendency in our media-driven, and I, I love the media, and particularly these days, but in our media-driven society, our attention gets pulled all over the place, and it gets taken off the main point. So my first image was, well, if I were in Texas, I would go and I would try to put my body in between the people snatching the children and the children peacefully. That may sound silly and ineffective, and it probably would be ineffective, but that was my instinct. And then. Well, I'm not in Texas, and I don't know how to get to Texas, and I don't think I can get to Texas right now. Uh, now what do I do? And then I hear, there are children in New York. They've been sent here, hundreds of them. Now what? So listening to our mayor, I heard that both the mayor and the governor of New York are trying to figure out where these children are so they can help them. 
but they can't find out. They're not being told. And then I heard today that those of us who are inspired to go and try to protect these children and help them could wind up making matters worse by scaring them because we would be bringing police with us and they don't speak English and they don't know what's going on anyway and they're already terrified. I also hear that people are meeting and demonstrating in more neutral places and I hear that people are raising large amounts of money and people with legal skills and otherwise are stepping forward. So I'm encouraged by that. But still, what am I going to do? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. But I'm looking. Some of you may have some good ideas. And I'd like to hear them. I, um, Tenshin Roshi spoke quite a bit about the Bodhisattva Guanyin or Avalokiteshvara as is, uh, as it's said in, in uh, Sanskrit. Um, that is the archetype of compassion in our tradition. And behind me is an exquisite version of this uh, archetype. This archetype is represented in many different forms, both seated and standing, with different gestures, and in both uh, male and female genders, and also in between. Um, the Heart Sutra that we chant, that's chanted every day in a Zen temple, begins with, with the words, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing. Prajna Paramita, the perfection of wisdom, clearly saw. And then proceeds to tell us what the foundation of Buddhist compassion is. And I think. Uh, we chant it every day because it's so hard to remember the Buddha's teachings of impermanence and non-self and dukkha suffering. But these are teachings of compassion, not just wisdom. So my favorite depiction of Avalokiteshvara for a long time is a depiction I walked into a, um, a knick-knack store on 24th Street in San Francisco that had all kinds of various statues and pictures and I don't such stores don't exist there anymore. But there was a giant painting on the wall. And it was of Avalokiteshvara uh, standing very much like this one. But she was standing on the head of a dragon in a roiling ocean, a huge roiling, full of waves. 
And she was balancing on the head of a dragon. So in Buddhism, dragons generally are representing wisdom. But I kind of took it very literally that this being was practicing balancing in an impossible situation in this giant ocean. And I could relate to that, and I do relate to that right now. It feels like a giant roiling ocean, and I am trying to find balance. Where is balance? And I know from my years of yoga, you can't hold balance. The balance is found each moment. And the very moment that you feel like you're falling over is the moment of balance. When you're leaning against something or holding on to something, that's leaning against or holding on. But balance is this moment right before free fall. Um, so I feel like that's where I'm at right now, and oh, as I am. And I loved this depiction, and um, I gathered little representations of it. I, I, I debated buying the picture, but it was a little too expensive for me. And it was huge, <laughs> giant. Anyway, um, that Avalokiteshvara is also, or Guanyin is also holding ointment in her hand. This is a female depiction, a female embodied Guanyin. And she's pouring it on the waters. Ointment to soothe this roiling. So this was my favorite depiction. And um, when I first came to Zen, I wasn't really so crazy about Buddha. Didn't really approve of Buddha. <laughs> he left his family. I didn't think that was a good idea. He seemed a little egotistical. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't relate. But I saw this statue of Avalokiteshvara, a little one, in a Zen center store, and I bought that, and I put that on my altar. So that was my, my first step to, toward this archetype business. Later, I came to appreciate Buddha also. A few years ago, I was beginning to teach. I have been authorized to begin teaching, and I wanted to teach a Zen and yoga retreat. And I was looking for an image, a Buddhist image, that would exemplify what I wanted to express. And I looked for a Buddhist statue, and I just I looked online at you know, various Pinterest and so forth, and I didn't really see anything. And so then I thought, well, let me see what, what's out there with Avalokiteshvara these days. And um, I fell in love with an image. I, 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 I fell in love with it. I saw it, and I loved it. And uh, since then, I've studied this image over and over, and there's lots of good reasons to love it. But uh, I have to say, I didn't have any reasons. It just was an immediate um, image that I loved. And I brought that image because I wanted to share it with you. And maybe I can put it where you can see it, too. So this is Guanyin. This is Chinese Guanyin, 11th century. It's about eight feet tall, carved out of wood. Right now it lives in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> How did it get there? I don't want to even go there. 
but they treat it with enormous respect. I went on pilgrimage to visit it, and I went into the museum when it opened, the second it opened, and a number of docents were there to greet me. They said, oh, let us show you. And I'm like, I want to visit Guanyin. Oh, you want to go to the temple. They've recreated a temple for her. Him. Him. I say her because that's a habit. This is actually a male body, Guanyin. If you look closely, you can see it. I didn't notice that at first. Um, so the first representations, the first cultural representations of this bodhisattva were in male configured bodies. Um, and uh, as they traveled northward into Afghanistan and China and so forth, um, they began to change. And at this point, there probably were other representations of Guanyin that were more completely one or the other. But this is considered a transitional figure. And I, when I read that and heard about that and figured that out, I thought, how perfect. A Guanyin for our time. A Guanyin that's not associated particularly, completely, with one gender or another, because compassion isn't either. So um, this Guanyin is uh, seated in, a, in an asana. That's another thing I loved about it. You don't find much Buddhist iconography with the word asana attached. That's a yoga word. We do asanas, trikonasana, etc. This is Raj Lalitasana. It means royal ease pose. This is an asana. In the yoga literature, asana means um, meditation seat, as, the word to be. And um, so actually, for yogis, I tell them that each asana is a meditation posture. Because sometimes these days, people don't know that. They think it's an exercise or something. So uh, I, I like to let them know that. But this is an asana. And uh, when you look at this closely, uh, you know, I like, I think most people are as drawn to the face. It's a beautiful face that is genderless and is in deep meditation. Deeply calm, deeply listening. And you move down the body. And I, as a yoga teacher, I go to the ground. That's where I start, the feet. The first thing, Sindhu knows, it's the first thing I teach in yoga. And um, I looked at this, and, and I visited this bodhisattva, so I was right next to it. I looked at the feet. These are strong, active feet. They are in contact with the ground, and they're ready to bear weight. And then I looked up the leg. Little bit of yoga teaching. The lower leg is the one vertical bone in the standing body. It is meant to carry all our weight. It is the tibia. It sits. Its asana is on the heel bones. And when that bone is in balance, 
the body can be in balance. This is what I teach. Those tibia are ready to take weight. In a seated meditation posture, they're in Padmasana. No weight bearing. They're inactivated. And then one sees the strong muscles. So this bodhisattva is listening deeply. And the delicacy of the hand, this was all carved from a single piece of wood, a single tree, except for this arm, this delicate arm, this arm of gentleness, this light touch. So this bodhisattva listens, and there's a gentleness and a delicacy, but there's strength. So when this bodhisattva responds, there's grounding, there's kindness, and it never stops listening. I have to start using the pronoun they, because that's the right pronoun for this bodhisattva. They never stop listening, even in action. That's what I aspire to be like. I want to keep listening. I want to be ready to act. And when I'm acting, I don't want to stop listening. Because one can change on a dime, depending on the cry that you hear. When I first started um, teaching yoga, my yoga teacher said, you teach your practice. You don't teach poses. You don't teach theory. You teach your practice. So I've applied that to my training as a Zen teacher. And what I'm sharing with you is my current dilemma and my current practice. I will keep asking the question, how does a bodhisattva sit, stand, and think, and speak? And I will keep listening. I vow to all of you. I will keep listening. And I will be ready to move. <coughs> I will cultivate grounded feet vertical tibias, strong thighs, a delicate touch, I hope, and a listening, meditative mind. I offer that as a way, not because I've proved it in my life to be the way, but because I've heard of this way from teachers who I respect and who I've watched carefully and who I feel are, are showing right now that this is the way.
I am sorry. I say that to all the children who've been separated from their families. I am sorry. I am complicit. I didn't support this program. I didn't support this administration. I've been quite vocal against it. But I accept responsibility right now. And in our tradition, we start with confession and repentance. I confess that I, sh I carry responsibility. And I am sorry. And I'll do what I can. And I need your help. I need your help to point me in the right direction. I need your help to support me. I need to support you. I need to be there supporting you. I need to put my body on the line. And I need to do that with others, not alone. And I offer this. If any of this is helpful, I'm happy. If it's not helpful, just let it go. I just remembered something I saw this morning. I think it might be OK to read it. And then there'll be a few minutes to hear from you. By the way, Greg, I got some information on Cayuga centers. Um, someone posted this from Jack Cornfield, Cornfield, who is a very well-known Buddhist teacher in the insight tradition. Are you familiar, some, some of you? I, his book on loving kindness was important to me some years back. So uh, he quotes the Buddha here. As long as a society holds regular and frequent assemblies, meeting in harmony and mutual respect, can they be expected to prosper and not decline? As long as a society follows the long traditions of wisdom and honors its elders, can they be expected to prosper and not decline? As long as society protects and uh, it says, wives, daughters, and vulnerable among them. And live just, let's just say the vulnerable among them, which is not limited to wives and daughters. Can they be expected to prosper and not decline? As long as a society cares for the shrines and sacred places of the natural world. That's another thing that just happened. Is one of our sacred national shrines has been put up for. Uh, being torn apart can be they be expected to prosper and not decline. Um, this came from the last teaching of the Buddha when he was dying. So we, we often give great credit to words coming from dying teachers. That's what he had to say. Jack Kornfeld says, Kornfield, whatever your political perspective, now is the season to stand up for what matters, to stand up against hate, 
to stand for respect, to stand for protection of the vulnerable, to care for the natural world. Do not believe that meditation and contemplation are the fulfillment of the Buddhist path. Inner peace, freedom, and joy develop only when paired with the outer teachings of virtue, respect, and mutual care. The foundation of dharma is relational, built on generosity, virtue, and loving kindness. The path to human happiness and liberation requires right intention, intentions that are free from greed, hatred, and cruelty. Right speech, speech that is true and helpful, not harsh, not vain, slanderous, or abusive. And right action, actions that are free from causing harm, killing, stealing, and sexual exploitation. In his life, the Buddha intervened to try to stop wars. He counseled kings and ministers and guided those around him with teachings of peace and respect. In modern times, Maha Gosanananda of Cambodia joined the United Nations peace process and led years of peace walks of loving kindness through the war zones and killing fields of Cambodia. Thai abbots have taken their robes and ordained the oldest trees as elders of the forest to protect whole ecosystems from logging. Burmese monks and nuns marched in the streets to protect citizens from harsh military dictatorship. A.T. Aryane in Sri Lanka enlisted hundreds of thousands in a 500-year peace plan. Vietnamese, Chinese, and Tibetan monastics have stood up for peace, justice, and compassion, even immolating themselves to stop the harmful actions around them. Gandhi explains, those who say spirituality has nothing to do with politics do not know what spirituality really means. This is not about red or blue. It is about standing up for the most basic of human principles, for moral action and the prevention of harm. It is embodying dharma amidst the troubles of the world. You are not alone. You have a generation, you have generations of ancestors at your back. You have the blessing of interdependence and community. You have the great trees of the forest as steadfast allies. You have the turning of the seasons and the renewal of life in your music, as your music. You have the vast sky of emptiness to hold all things graciously. You have been training for this for a long time. With practice, you have learned to quiet the mind and open the heart. You have learned emptiness and interdependence. Now it is time to step forward, bringing your equanimity and courage, wisdom, and compassion to the world. The Bodhisattva shows the way to alleviate suffering amidst it all. As Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh explains, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person in the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. Across the world, storms of uncertainty and fear have arisen. It is time to collectively stand up on our tibias, calm and clear. With peacefulness and mutual respect, our Buddhist communities can become centers of protection and vision. Protection can take many forms. 
Protection can be providing sanctuary for those in danger. Protection can be skillfully confronting those whose actions would harm the vulnerable among us. Protection can be standing up for the environment. Protection can be becoming an active ally for those targeted by hate and prejudice. Vision means carrying the lamp of the Dharma. It means standing up for truth no matter what. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. Greed, hate, and ignorance create suffering. Generosity, love, and wisdom bring happiness. Mind is the forerunner. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow. Plant seeds of goodness, and well-being will grow. Now a time of change has come. We must listen deeply. We must listen deeply. Bear witness, honor everyone, and choose our actions wisely and courageously. Do not worry if the right action is not clear to you yet. Thank you, Jack. Wait in the unknowing with mindfulness and a clear heart. Soon the right time will come, and you will know to stand up. You will know to stand up. I will meet you there, love in the Dharma. I'm sorry I used every minute of my time to speak, but I do want to hear from you. Please speak to me. And uh, right now we need to do service and let people go who have planned to leave at this time. But I'm here after service, and I would love to hear from you, whatever it is you have to say. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.